Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. There's a, a verse actually over in 1 Corinthians, which I think of when I think of today's passage. And it's a verse that's always troubled me. And it's this. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God is not about talk, but about power. Yet my own experience and that of most of Western Christianity around me is so much talk and so little power. In the church I grew up in, there was a lot of talk about God and about the Bible, but I didn't see or sense much power. Later I went to seminary and I learned course after course how to talk and what to talk about. I was trained to say the right things about God. But I received hardly any training in what to do with or about the power of God. And our church, we can talk plenty, can't we? (laughs) But how much power do we see? How much power do we experience? We experience some, right? But not as much as I'd like to see. Not as much as we see in the New Testament. And yet the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power, according to that verse in 1 Corinthians. That was true of Jesus' ministry, his life on earth, right? Sure, Jesus talked. He he told parables. He taught about God's kingdom. But he also exercised power. He fed the hungry miraculously. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He walked on water. He accepted outcasts in such a welcoming way that it radically transformed their lives. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. Now, I'm not saying that words can't be powerful. Words can be powerful, especially words about Jesus. But I'm talking about when there's an awful lot of talk, but very little power. Well, today's passage is all about power. The power of God to change lives, to set people free, to put broken people back together again, to overcome evil, to break down barriers. Today's passage recounts for us an incredible demonstration of God's power in a city in Samaria. And when I read this story, it seems so unlike most of our experiences today. Do you feel this too as you read this story? In this passage, we have shrieking evil spirits We have paralyzed people being healed. We have a sorcerer who's called the great power of God. We have apostles laying hands on people, and those people are filled with the Holy Spirit. A normal Sunday at church, right? (laughs) Well, in some parts of the world, it is. But for us in the Western world, who've been so influenced by the worldview of the Enlightenment, for better and for worse, it's a very unfamiliar territory to us. And, and so we're tempted to filter all that we read about here through our rational Western educations and to say, well, all of that can't really happen, or at least not anymore, or if it did, we really don't understand it, so we're just going to skip past it, see what Altax has to say to us. But the truth is, the sort of things that we see in today's passage are very real, very familiar. They very much resonate with the experience of of many peoples, perhaps most cultures in the world still today. 
And in fact, as our culture in the West moves from modernity to post-modernity, the, the sort of power that we see in today's passage increasingly resonates with Americans and especially young Americans. So I want to invite us to slow down this morning and to take a fresh look at the powerful events that we see God doing in, in this text and to consider what they have to say to us. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter only of talk, or sorry, not a matter of talk only, but also of power. And increasingly, if we're going to be effective in outreach going into the future, we are going to have to rediscover the place of God's power. So what I'd like to do is walk through today's story and to notice and appreciate all the ways that power, Jesus' power, are at work in this story. Um, don't worry about remembering every one of these. Just see which one strikes you this morning. We begin in verse 4, which we ended with last Sunday, when we saw how a great persecution had recently broken out in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the birthplace of this new movement of those who follow Jesus Christ. And, and these followers of Jesus in Jerusalem are now being scattered. They've had to flee for their lives, leaving their homes, leaving families in many cases, and jobs. And so now they're homeless refugees. And given that, I find verse 4 to be totally astounding because it says those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Amazing, amazing power. Think about it. They've been branded as dangerous heretics. They've been hunted down. They have been rebuked all by their religious leaders. And instead of keeping a low profile, instead of feeling ashamed, instead of wondering if they've been wrong to believe in Jesus, or instead of responding to their hardship by asking, where is Jesus when we need him? If he's really Lord, why is he letting all this happen to us? Instead of any of that, these people are enthusiastically sharing the good news about Jesus wherever they go saying, I've just got to tell you, you've just got to hear about this. Something so powerful and so compelling has happened to them that they are unstoppably enthusiastic. So the first way we see the power of Jesus at work in this story is the power of enthusiasm and excitement. Among, of all people, bedraggled refugees among people who have every reason to be worried about themselves and how they're going to survive. Instead, they're unstoppably enthusiastic and they want to talk about Jesus. That's power. Well, then we turn to this guy named Philip. And we remember Philip because Luke's already introduced him to us. Philip's one of the seven predominantly Greek-speaking Jews who the early church chose and the apostles appointed to take care of widows who were in need in Jerusalem. And we've already begun to see, and we see again, that some of these seven do far more than what they were appointed to do. And here we see what Philip goes on to do. Kicked out of Jerusalem, f fleeing for his life, he goes to Samaria and he begins to talk about Jesus there. Now, what do we know about Samaria? The Samaritans had a very hostile relationship with the Jews, people like Philip. 
Each viewed the other with suspicion. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be spiritually lost, to be spiritually compromised in the way that they worshipped God. And the Samaritans thought similarly about the Jews. So for a Samaritan to become a Jew would be almost unheard of. It, It would be to betray your own people. And likewise for a Jew to become a Samaritan. And yet here we have Philip, a Jew, going to the Samaritans and telling them to believe in the Jewish Messiah. The audacity of it. It's bold, it's innovative, and for many Jews, it's very sketchy. But even more, for the Samaritans to listen to the preaching of a Jew and to respond positively, in fact, to convert to be baptized, which was a Jewish cleansing or conversion rite, in response to this Jew's message, this would be to betray their own people and their own religion in the views of many people. Philip is stirring up a hornet's nest here. Here we see the power at work in Philip both to boldly innovate, to try something risky and unpopular, and we see the power to break through and to overcome incredible prejudice. Well, it helps that Philip is healing people and casting out demons. That will at least get you a hearing. Like it did for Jesus. Like it did for the apostles. But Philip is not Jesus, and he's not one of the 12 apostles. He's not part of Jesus' original inner circle. And yet here Philip is, a regular guy, healing people and casting out demons. He is experiencing the power of Jesus, the power to heal, the power to set people free. And again, these, pa- these powerful signs and wonders are gaining a hearing and a platform for his message. You know, churches today, they, we struggle and we strategize about how to get people's attention, don't we? Maybe send out a flyer in the mail. Maybe uh, run a social media campaign. Maybe do a felt needs ministry. Um, And then maybe we can follow up with an invitation to a seeker service with an awesome band and an eloquent practical message. And none of those are necessarily bad, but that's not what we see them doing in the book of Acts. Instead, as as we've seen before, it's their radical self-sacrifice and generosity as a community, particularly to the needy, which makes them a compelling, attractive community. And it's also the power at work in and through them, especially to heal and deliver people that gets people's attention. So again, we see power in today's passage, power to heal, power to deliver. The result, Luke tells us, is is joy, verse 8. There's much joy in that city. Power to bring joy. Let me ask you, does the world out there, does the culture around us have the power to bring joy? I mean real joy, not not a passing moment of pleasure and then you wake up in the morning with a hangover, feeling empty. I mean real lasting joy. I don't see much joy these days, actually. I see people chasing pleasure, um, but I see them seldom satisfied. I see anxiety and worry growing. In, in the culture around us. But, but Philip, by, by doing the works of Jesus and sharing the message of Jesus, he brought joy. That's power. Power to bring joy, real joy. 
Well, then in verse 9, we meet this guy, Simon, which we all want to know what's up with him. Depending on your translation, Simon is a sorcerer or he's a magician. Um, And in that culture, this wouldn't be someone who did sleight of hand tricks, although he might have had some of those. But he would have been perceived as someone tapping into a deeper power to to accomplish things through spiritual means. And and Simon is famous, or maybe better, he's infamous in, in Samaria. For years, Simon has, has amazed people in his city with his great power and his magic arts. And as a result, he's enjoyed great status and fame. He, he boasts about it, and, and the people around him actually call him the great power of God. And this phrase, the great power, it, it's unfamiliar to us, but it actually comes up um, in different places in old Greek documents and and what we learn is that it's a divine title it's a title used of the gods in the greco-roman understanding of the gods so evidently people perceive simon as, as a god that's how powerful his sorcery is the great deeds that he has he has done that have amazed all the people but then philip comes to town another powerful one and Philip's miracles are so great, evidently, that everyone turns their attention away from Simon to Philip. Even Simon turns his attention to Philip. Evidently, Philip's miracles are so great that even Simon, a so-called God, is impressed. Talk about power. Verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished at the great signs and miracles that he saw. Now consider what's going on here because when when a new power comes to town, when an invading force moves into a new area, often there's conflict, often there's resistance from the power, from the force that has previously occupied that area, right? Missionaries will tell you that when you move into a new territory, sometimes there's a very specific battle to be fought with a power broker of some sort who must be defeated if the door is going to be open, if the territory is going to be opened up to the kingdom of God. And that's sometimes been called a power encounter. How did Jesus put it? He said, you can't plunder a strong man's house unless first you tie up the strong man. Then you can plunder his house. And as the kingdom of God, as the mission of Jesus advances to a new area, to set captives free, to put back together those who are broken, to shine light in darkness, to replace lies with truth, often there's resistance. Sometimes this resistance is on a human or a political level. Sometimes it's on more of a spiritual level. Like with this powerful sorcerer, Simon. I I once gave you, in a sermon, a contemporary example of a power encounter, and I'll recount it again. It it, it happened um, when an international student who was in Fuller Seminary's PhD program went back to his home country during a break in Ghana, West Africa. That's where he was from. And and at home during one of his breaks, he was attempting to share about Jesus with several people who lived in his community. And they listened respectfully, but no one turned to to Christ. 
And he later learned that they were intimidated by a witch doctor who lived nearby in that area. And the witch doctor kept a symbol of his authority hanging outside of his home. It was a lattice basket filled with water that never leaked. And so this student decided to pray that God would empty the basket. And so he stayed outside the witch doctor's home one night and he prayed all night, God, demonstrate your power, empty the basket, show these people that Jesus is real. And at some point he fell asleep. He woke up the next morning to a commotion around him. The basket was empty and the town saw a mass revival. That's a power encounter. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And sometimes a power encounter has to take place and another power broker has to be defeated or disarmed for the kingdom of God to advance into that territory. I think we're seeing something like that here in this town in Samaria. Well, news filters back to Jerusalem about the the, the innovative controversial ministry that Philip has going on down in Samaria. And so the apostles, the leaders of the Jesus movement, they they send two of their number, Peter and John, to check out what's happening. And when Peter and John arrive, they discover a very curious thing. They discover that even though the Samaritans have heard the message about Jesus from Philip, and even though they have responded by believing in Jesus, and they've been baptized in the name of Jesus, even though all of that's happened, these people have not received the Holy Spirit. Now, let's pause and take note of two very important points about the Holy Spirit that we see here. First of all, the Holy Spirit is not optional. Do you remember Pentecost? As we've been going through the book of Acts? Do you remember how the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost totally transformed a timid group into a powerhouse movement that set out to change the world? Do you remember that all the way back to John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus, that John foretold who would Jesus be? He would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not optional. The Holy Spirit is totally central and necessary for salvation and for God's people to be God's people. The Holy Spirit is God with us today in our experience. If we don't have the Spirit, we don't have God's presence. We are like an empty building. We're like a house with no one home. The Spirit is absolutely fundamental to what it means to be followers of Jesus. And yet the Samaritans have not received the Holy Spirit. Why not? What's going on here? Well, then the second thing I want you to notice, leaving that question hanging there, is is that Peter and John can tell that the Samaritans have not received the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes on people, they know it. Sometimes because they begin to speak in languages that they don't know, as we saw back at Pentecost. Sometimes because they prophesy. Sometimes because they enthusiastically give praise and glory to God. Again and again in Acts, it's a noteworthy event when the Spirit comes. And and here we aren't told what happened when Peter and John laid hands on the Samaritans and prayed for them to receive the Spirit. But it was evidently so impressive to Simon, who's watching it happen, that Simon says, I want to be able to do that. 
In fact, I'll pay money for that power. That's how impressive it was to Simon. So question for us today, have you received the Spirit? Was it a noteworthy event? And if not, why not? Well, that question has led to a lot of theologizing, a lot of different church teachings which have actually divided God's people. And so on the one hand, some have focused on the fact that that it's when the apostles laid their hands on the Samaritans that they received the Holy Spirit. You know, didn't work for Philip. And and so from this uh, and, and other ideas and scriptures has come the idea of apostolic succession. Those who believe this say that, they, they say, see, it, it, it's all about the apostles and their laying hands on you. That's what we see in this passage. Philip wasn't an apostle. That's why the Samaritans didn't receive the Spirit through him. The apostles had to come. And we don't have apostles today, but we do have bishops, uh, or the biblical word for it in a lot of modern translations, overseers. And um, we have bishops who have had they have had hands laid on them by other bishops. And those bishops had hands laid on them by other bishops, and so on back to the apostles, the original bishops who had land, hands laid on by the apostles. And if you're not in that succession, if a bishop in that succession has not laid hands on you, then you're not clergy, so you, you don't have Christ's authority to do ministry in the same way. So there's some who have taken that from this passage. Others have gone another route and they've talked about a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. They've said it's not enough to believe in Jesus. Sure, when you believe, the Spirit comes often silently and and you're born again, you're saved. But but that's not enough. You, You need to have a dramatic second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Like the apostles did at Pentecost, like the Samaritans had here, you need to experience that to have a full Christian life. And some of you have had wonderful experiences like that of the the Holy Spirit. You've experienced this. Um, What what I would like to suggest, though, um, is that we don't form a theology from a handful of passages in Acts and say, because it happened like this for the Samaritans or at Pentecost, that it should happen exactly like this for everyone. Now, let me explain why I think it happened the way it did for the Samaritans. And then we'll get back to the question about the Holy Spirit. I I think it happened for the Samaritans, particularly for the sake of unity. Because the Samaritans, remember, are despised by the Jews. And the Jews are despised by the Samaritans. And that's a recipe for division among these early believers as they come to follow Jesus. Remember, in chapter 6, we've already got hard feelings and tensions between the Jews who speak Greek and grew up in a Greek culture and the Jews who speak Hebrew, who grew up in the the motherland. And, And now for the Jews who speak Greek to be going off and innovating and inviting the Samaritans into the fold, I mean, think about human nature, right? Can't you just see the, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, the original ones, the pure ones, clucking their tongues and saying, you know, it's, it's, it's bad enough that we have Greek-speaking Jews among us. That, that's hard for us to take. But Samaritans, that is just going too far, right? 
that Samaritans, they're not even really believers. They believe weird things. They believe false things. We're not accepting them as part of us. Second class at best. Right? Human nature. (laughs) So what happens? The apostles go down to Samaria. And when they lay hands on the Samaritans, the Samaritans receive the Spirit just like the original Hebraic Jews did. The Samaritans have their own Pentecost. In other words, God is welcoming in the Samaritans. God's stamp of approval is on this, and the apostles are there to witness it. So what is happening here is about unity, I think. It's it's God's power, the Spirit's power to unify. Can you think of any greater power than the power to take groups who have been at odds with each other for centuries and to unite them together as one new people. That's power. Now, I I realize this doesn't answer all of our questions about the Holy Spirit. And especially why the Spirit's coming is often so noticeable, so tangible in Acts, and why that isn't always so now in our experience. And and we're going to have to live with that tension. Because the Bible just says, hey, here's how it happened. And we're going to have to struggle with the fact that some of our experiences so far don't live up to what we read about in the scripture. I don't have answers for for all of that, except to say, don't be afraid to let it make you hungry. To expect more, to ask for more. Don't be afraid to seek from God more of the power of the Holy Spirit. Just don't be like Simon. Peter rebukes him, right? Right? Because Simon wants to purchase this power with money. He, he's no doubt done that before in his craft, as, a, as a, his practice as a sorcerer, as a magician, purchasing books of secret spells. They were very expensive. Or seeking training and mentoring from other sorcerers. He's no doubt shelled out money to receive power and use that new power to gain more power, to gain fame for himself and for his honor and his name. And so Simon thinks, now I can be a powerful Christian. I can purchase a new power, an amazing power, the power to lay my hands on people and to give them a wonderful, life-changing experience of the Holy Spirit. But how does Peter reply? May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. He's a gift. He's free. You can't earn him. You can't deserve him. You can't control him or purchase him. You can only receive him him as a gift. And those who, who pray for others, who minister to others, have to realize we're offering a gift. There's nothing in it for us. There's no riches. There's no status. There's no pride. We're just offering a gift. Well, Peter goes on to challenge Simon uh, further. He says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter's pointing Simon here to another kind of power, the power to change, the, the power to have your heart made right. Repent, Peter says, change your heart, turn around, ask God to forgive you because your heart's not right. I wish we knew how it turned out for Simon. 
he does ask Peter to pray for him so that the bad stuff that Peter warned him about won't, wouldn't happen. But, but I'd love to know if Simon really changed in his heart. Because the power to change, the power to have a new heart is available to us. We just have to ask God to forgive us and to change our heart. And that is power. And then lastly, look at verse 25. On their way home, Peter and John further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now here's what's striking here. This is the first evidence we have of the apostles doing anything outside of Jerusalem. Way back in chapter 1, remember Jesus told them, hopefully some of you have this memorized by now, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? But so far, the apostles have stayed in Jerusalem. Until now, finally, we see them being witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Not because of any initiative of their own, but because Philip is pushing out into a new frontier and the apostles are now playing catch-up. Not out in front leading, but getting dragged along by others. God is at work in power, and his top leaders are finally catching up to their responsibilities. God isn't boxed in by an organizational chart. He'll use who he can use. And if his leaders are wise, they'll catch up and they'll get on board with what God is doing. Which is what we see the apostles doing here, finally. Well, how about us? What's our takeaway from this passage? Where, where we see an incredible exercise of God's power. Power to create enthusiasm when you could be feeling sorry for yourself instead. Power to overcome prejudice, to innovate, to take risks, to break down barriers. Power to heal and deliver, to set people free, to make them whole. Power to bring joy Power to engage in a power encounter and overcome one who could be standing in the way of the progress of God's kingdom. Power to bring unity where division and suspicion due to human nature could very easily reign. Power to offer the Spirit as a gift. Power to have a new heart toward God. And power to move people, leaders even, from comfort and procrastination to obedience. So much power. Because the kingdom of God is not just a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. And there's so much more power available to us who follow Jesus. So if you'd like to pray for power this morning, maybe about one of those things, which is mentioned in the, pa the passage, maybe something else in your life. As, as we sing the next couple of songs, the prayer team is going to come up front instead of being in the lounge. And we would be happy to pray with you and for you that you would receive that power. Let's worship. Let's pray.